Okay, uh, we're continuing our series entitled Reasons to Believe, and we're moving on to part four, and this part we're entitling The Inspiration of the Scriptures. And in the past two parts, we looked at a lot of evidence to show the authenticity of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we deliberately did not yet address the question of whether or not the Bible is truly the inspired Word of God. All we tried to establish in the past two parts was that the Old Testament and the New Testament are historical documents that have been very carefully and uh, wonderfully preserved for us for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the complaint or the criticism that often comes up, you know, we don't know which version of the Bible we're reading now, and a lot of stories and miracles got added in later on. That's really a bunch of garbage. The Old Testament and the New Testament that you and I read now is essentially... Uh, the same as, for instance, the Old Testament we saw last time. It's the same Old Testament that Jesus and the Jews of his day were quoting and referring to. And the New Testament that we have now, it may be King James or New American Standard or New International Version, slight changes in some of the wordings, but it's basically the same as over 20,000 complete manuscripts of the New Testament that have been preserved for us since the first century. So there's no other document known to man that has so much reliable historical authenticity. Now, having hopefully established that, what we now want to do is go beyond history, go beyond the archaeological evidences, even the Dead Sea Scrolls and all of that, and try to answer another question that often comes up. Okay, we have the Bible now. You've shown us that the 39 books of the Old Testament are basically the same as what they had in Jesus' day, and the New Testament has been faithfully and carefully preserved since the first century. But how do we know this isn't just a nice collection of religious writings that we can put on the shelf alongside the Koran and all the other religious books that we've read? <clears throat> In other words, is the Bible the Word of God? Are these words that we read from Genesis to Revelation, are they divinely inspired? And that's a very important question, because if even if we've been able to show that this is a nice historical document that's been preserved for us, it still really has no authority to speak to our lives. And certainly we don't need to fear or tremble before these words. If they are divinely inspired, however, from Genesis to Revelation, then that's a whole different story. And we need to tremble at every word in this book if it's the very word of God. And as we've already seen, the word Bible actually comes from the Greek word biblos, which simply means book. And anywhere you find the word book, in the New Testament, it's just a translation of that Greek word, uh, biblos, for book. But this collection of writings, the Old Testament and the New Testament, has come to be known as the Bible. And really what we're saying is, this is the book. And I think we will see by the end of this study that it is indeed not just a book, it is the book. It's the book of all books. There's no other book like it. Uh, it's not just that it's a, a, a good book to read, but it's on a whole different level.
from any other book that you could possibly have in your library. And just to summarize a few other things that we've already looked at, the Bible itself is actually a library of many different books written by 40 different authors over a period of more than 2,000 years. So that in itself is an amazing thing, how you now have this one unified volume, one book that took 2,000 years to write. And if you were to list all of the authors of the book, uh, it would take a couple of pages because there are 40 of them. So in more than a few ways, this is a very unique book. And what we want to do tonight is look at a number of evidences, both in the book itself and even outside of the book, that will answer this question, is the Bible divinely inspired? Is it really God's word to mankind? And a couple of other things just to note as we begin. The authors of 55 of the 66 books that make up the Bible are known. We know 55 of the book's authors. Uh, there are 11 books that we're not sure who the author or authors were. And I'll just give you uh, that list if you're interested. Uh, the book of Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Esther, Job, and Hebrews. We're not absolutely certain about the authors of any of those writings. However, and as we looked at last week, um, all of these have from the beginning, been included in the canon of Scripture. There was never any doubt, uh, for instance, with the Jews about Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Esther, or Job. These have always been considered part of the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, it's just that we don't know for sure the authors. And there are some psalms and some proverbs uh, that the authors are not known. A lot of them are, but some are not. Some of the books, like Genesis, Judges, and the so-called historical books, um, Chronicles and Kings, they cover such long periods of time, long periods of history, that they probably represent collections of ancient archives and records that were compiled and then edited by some individual who was alive toward the end of that period of time or history. An example is Moses. We saw last time that the first five books of the Bible are all attributed to Moses. Well, obviously Moses didn't live from the time of the Garden of Eden until the time that the Lord took him home. So there, there had to be some keeping of records that were given into Moses' hands or by divine revelation. God communicated all of that history to him and had him write it down. Um, all of the authors of the Bible, and I'm talking both Old and New Testament, all of the authors, with possibly one exception, that being Luke, were Jews. That's an amazing uh, fact. And I want to read a verse that definitely confirms that as far as what was written up until the time of Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? 
and he answers his own question, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. So this was common knowledge that the the Jews, the Jewish people, they were the guardians of God's word. The the Old Testament scriptures in particular, uh, all of these authors from Moses all the way through to Malachi, they were Jewish writers and what what an honor that God entrusted his very words to the Jewish people uh, to write down, to record, and to preserve. And of course, we talked in previous studies about scribes. They didn't have Xerox copiers. They didn't have printing presses. So all these were meticulously hand-copied. And we don't even... We don't really even have time in this study to go into the details of how these scribes had all kinds of different safeguards to make sure that when they copied a portion of Scripture, it was copied accurately. They would even count vowels and at the end make sure the the total number of vowels match the number in the original, and it's just amazing uh, the different ways that they went about ensuring the integrity of each copy that they hand-wrote. But the point here is, uh, Paul confirms that the Scriptures were entrusted to the Jews. And, of course, as we come into the New Testament, even there, every writer with the possible exception of Luke the physician, were all Jews who were the authors of these scriptures. And these authors come from such an amazing diversity of backgrounds and education. Let me just give you some examples. Two writers were kings. That's David and Solomon. There may be more that are unknown or unnamed, but those are two uh, writers of Scripture that were kings in Israel. Two other writers were priests. That's Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Two writers were fishermen, Peter and John. Two writers were shepherds, Moses and Amos. Paul, of course, who wrote... Uh, a large portion of the New Testament, was a Pharisee. He was a theologian, a rabbi, but he was one of those hated Pharisees that Jesus was forever arguing and debating when he was here on the earth, and God decides to save a Pharisee and entrusts him with a large part of the New Testament Scripture. Uh, Daniel was a statesman. Matthew was a tax collector. Joshua was a soldier and an army commander. Ezra was one of those scribes that I was just referring to. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, or we would probably call him a butler. And so many other of the authors we don't even know, and we're not even sure about some of their backgrounds or occupations, but the point is, you have 40 different authors from all these different backgrounds, well-educated some, some totally uneducated, and yet all of them were authors of the same book, the book, the Bible. And even with all of that diversity of education and background, When you sit down and read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it seems like you're reading one author and one book. And the other amazing fact about the Bible, with all of those different authors and different kinds of backgrounds, contrary to what all the atheists and the critics would try to have us believe, they never contradict each other. There's one unified message from Genesis to Revelation. 
And some of this may be a repeat, but I think it is worthy of repetition. Let me just go through a quick summary again of the uniqueness of the Bible. There is no other book like it. And this first one's especially important to me. Of all history books, not just religious books, of all books written by man, there's only one book that gives a detailed account of how everything began. Genesis 1 gives us a detailed account of the special creation in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and scientists call that creation ex nihilo. In other words, out of nothing, God created everything. No other book gives an account of that. The Bible is the only book that gives an account of special creation. No wonder that's been under such attack uh, in recent decades and will continue to be under fiercer and fiercer attack, the whole truth of creation. Secondly, the Bible is the only book, and again, no other history book does this, it's the only book that gives a continuous historical record from the very first human beings. No other book gives us the history from Adam and Eve right on down through history. Uh, thirdly, the Bible is the only book of ancient history that reveals the purpose of history. There may be other ancient history books, but from Genesis right on through, the Bible is his story, God's story. That's what real history is. It's his story. And so, interwoven throughout the whole historical account of creation, of Adam and Eve, of their fall, of sin entering the human race, and right on down through the development of Israel and the coming of the Messiah, the church age, and on and on and on, it reveals God's purpose throughout history. No other book does that. Fourthly, the Bible is the only book that reveals and explains the origin of evil, sickness, murder, suffering, and death. Other books speculate about, you know, why is there evil in the world? Where did evil come from? Well, we're not left to speculation. The Bible tells us where evil came from, why there's sickness in the world today, why there's murder, why there's suffering, and why there's death. It's the only book that reveals and explains that. Fifthly, the Bible reveals the highest moral standards of all the religious books in the world. You can put the Bible alongside any other religious writing, and the Bible reveals a higher moral standard than any other religious book. Obviously, because it wasn't man's idea, morality. It was God revealing these things through his word to man. Sixthly, the Bible is the only book containing detailed prophecies predicting future events. And this is going to be a whole uh, separate part that we will do later on in this study, probably in a few more weeks. We're going to probably take more than a couple of sessions to look at the whole uh, concept of prophecy and we're going to look at numerous fulfilled prophecies, and even some of them that are yet to be fulfilled. But there's no other book that comes close to the Bible and its track record of predicting future events with 100% accuracy.
And finally, seventh in our list of why the Bible is so unique, it's the only book from ancient times which has the power to convict men of sin and to lead them to the one who can forgive them and free them from that sin. Okay, so the Bible is an absolutely unique and amazing book. And now, to try to answer this question, is it divinely inspired, and therefore, is it divinely authoritative? Is it really God's word to us? The first thing we want to look at is the claims that are made by the actual authors. For instance, as you read through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or one of the other uh, writers of the scriptures, what do they claim about what they're writing? And time and time and time again, we find many of the writers, and we're going to start by looking at the Old Testament, so many of the Old Testament writers repeatedly say, the Lord spoke to me. The word of the Lord came to me. And there are actually 2,600 claims of inspiration. This is in the Bible itself, 2,600 times the writers claim they weren't just writing down clever ideas or uh, we use that word inspiration kind of loosely, you know. They weren't just going and sitting out under a tree and getting some bright idea for a book or for a psalm or for a song. 2,600 times they record in their writings what I'm writing, the Lord spoke to me. And let me break that out for you just a little bit further. In the Torah or the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 680 times it claims that what was being written was basically recording the words of God. For instance, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, you find that over and over and over again. In the prophetical books of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 1,370 times the writers of those prophetical books claim that what they were recording were the words of God, not just their own ideas. Uh, in the historical books of the Old Testament, there are 418 claims of inspiration from God. And in the poetry books, that would be uh, like Psalms, Proverbs, 195 times the writers claim that they were inspired by God. So this is no small subject. 2,600 times we are told, this is the Word of God. This is what God said to me, and therefore I'm writing it down. And let's look at just a few specifics. We don't have time to obviously look up all 2,600, but let's look at a few samplings from Moses, David, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. That should be enough to show us how often and how clear these claims are in the scriptures themselves. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, and I'm going to read it from the New King James. It's not that different from the NIV, but sometimes I like the way this translation reads, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, You shall not add to the word which I command you, 
nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So Moses understood very clearly what he was writing and what he was telling the children of Israel. These were not his own words, his own commands, his own ideas, even to the point that he warned them, don't add anything which I'm commanding you and don't take anything away from it because these are the commandments of the Lord. And actually, in the book of Exodus, 50% of the entire book of Exodus consists of direct quotations of God speaking to Moses. And if you want to check that, uh, you can do some homework between now and next week. But 50% of Exodus is direct quotations of God. And then when you come to the book of Leviticus, 90% of Leviticus is actually quotations, direct quotations of God speaking. All right, moving on to David. Um, by David's own testimony, when he came to the end of his life, he spoke these words, and I'm reading from Second Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 4. Second Samuel 23, from 1 to 4. He says, These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. Pay close attention to the next verse. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. That's a beautiful example of inspiration. He was inspired by the Spirit of the Lord, and so the words that he was speaking, they were not his own words. He says, his word, God's word, was on my tongue. And verse 3, the God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, and he's quoting, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Now, these are bold claims. When you claim that you are actually quoting God, well, first of all, you heard God. And that's what David said. The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me. I heard what he said. And I'm going to quote him now. That's a bold claim. So he's both hearing directly from God and then either speaking it or recording it in some way so that others can read these quotations of God's word later on. Um, another example, many examples actually, in the book of Jeremiah and we'll just look at two specific references there. Uh, first one will be found in Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. And while you're going there, if you are following along, the, the statement, the word of the Lord came to me, or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, is found 36 times in the book of Jeremiah. So 36 different times he kept stressing, these are not thoughts rattling around inside my head. I heard from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, and then he quotes. Here's what God is saying. And in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, we read, But if I say... I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. His word 
is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. in. Indeed, I cannot. So, very clearly, Jeremiah repeats over and over, this is the word of the Lord. This is God's word that I am hearing, and even his word is inside of me like a fire. My favorite, though, is in Jeremiah chapter 36. And we need to do a a little bit of history here, because in Jeremiah 36, we read about one of the kings of Judah named Jehoiakim. And as you find in verse 1 of this chapter, Jeremiah 36, 1, he was the son of King Josiah. Very interesting contrast between this father and son. You may recall in Second Chronicles, uh, during King Josiah's reign, they finally found a copy of the law, and they brought it to the king, and they began to read from the book of the law to King Josiah. And he was so convicted and so broken, he tore his robes and he humbled himself, and basically he trembled at the word of God when he heard it. And God was so impressed with the attitude of Josiah, his humility, and it actually says he was so responsive to God's word that God delayed judgment. Judgment did ultimately come, but he delayed it until after Josiah's death. But now his son Jehoiakim is king, and he has a whole different spirit. And I would suggest you read this whole chapter. We're not going to do that, but I'm just going to pick out parts, enough, I think, to give you the picture here. Let me read from verse 1 to 4, Jeremiah 36, 1 to 4. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Remember, you find that 36 different times throughout the book of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord is now coming to Jeremiah. Here's what God says. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. And this is fairly common, and we'll look at a few other examples later on, where God actually tells the recipient of his words, write this down. In other words, take dictation. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you. And verse 3, Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, each of them will turn from his wicked way, then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words that the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them down on a scroll. Okay? So Jeremiah has all this in his head and in his heart, and he's dictating all the words of the Lord to this man, Baruch. And long story short, this scroll eventually makes its way to the king. And they begin reading the scroll to King Jehoiakim. And we're told in verse 22, it was the ninth ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. And whenever Jehudai had read three or four columns from the scroll, and that's 
Jeremiah's scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. A rather different response to God's word than that of his father. The word cut his father into pieces. Jehoiakim is cutting the word into pieces and throwing it into the fire. And even his attendants um, weren't too happy about the arrogance of the king. Um, And then in verse 27, after the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. Also, tell Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and cut off both men and animals from it? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will put on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. So, verse 32, Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah, and as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. You know, it's amazing how many Bibles have been burned, and apparently those that try to burn the Word of God, they just don't get it, that God's Word will not pass away. The Scripture cannot be broken. And it's interesting how even after the first scroll was burned, verbatim, Jeremiah was able to dictate a second copy. And so, clear evidence that these were not just his own thoughts or ideas that he was jotting down in a pad of paper. He was taking dictation from heaven, and then he was dictating it to this man Baruch, who was actually writing it down on a scroll. So the the scriptures, when we use that term, uh, it actually means the writings, something that has been written down. And God was very careful to see that all of these different portions of the Old Testament from Genesis up to Malachi were written down. And the Jews, they used that word uh, only to refer to these sacred writings that they believed were inspired by God. They referred to them as the scriptures. These were God's words written down. Let's look at Ezekiel, finally, uh, in the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, 50 times you find the same thing, the word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me over and over and over. Uh, Let's just look at one instance in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 3. And he gives the background in the 30th year, the fourth month, da-da-da-da-da. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. 
And that's another clear testimony and a clear example of divine inspiration. Now, I don't know how far we'll get with this, but let's move over into the New Testament, and definitely we're going to need at least another night to complete this. And I really don't want to hurry because this is an extremely important topic. Uh, not only is the Bible authentic and reliable, is it inspired? Now, let's come over to the New Testament and look at some of the claims that the New Testament writers made. And we'll look at Paul, we'll look at Peter, we'll look at John, and see what they have to say about their writings. And keep in mind, we've already looked at the reliability of their writings. 20,000 different manuscripts, basically all saying the same things that we're reading tonight from their different writings. Let's start with Paul. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul makes a very bold statement. Very bold. Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. See, that's what the world would have us to believe, that we're just reading man-made books and poetry and religious writings. This is just a book that man made up. Paul says, no, 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 no. The gospel that I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That's a direct claim to divine inspiration. Didn't learn it in seminary. Didn't learn it from the Pharisees. I wasn't taught it by anyone. It came to me from heaven by direct revelation. Look also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. Again, the writing of Paul. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. Uh, in the previous verse, he says, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. And now verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, and catch this, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. So here again, Paul is claiming the things that he is teaching the churches he didn't gain through reading books or going to school or being taught by some wise guru or some wise religious sage. What we are speaking and what we are teaching, we're not talking in words that were taught us by human wisdom, but these were taught to us by the Holy Spirit. Again, a claim to direct inspiration, direct revelation from God through the Holy Spirit. Okay, moving on, we're still looking at Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thess Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Another bold claim and statement made by Paul in his own writings. Here's what he says. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, notice that, when you received the word of God, how did they receive the word of God? Which you heard from us. 
the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Paul must have anticipated this was going to be one of the criticisms of the New Testament, that you guys are just following a bunch of teachings of men, um, good moral teachings, no doubt, but these are not God's words. He must have known that criticism was coming, and that's why so often he makes this claim, what we're saying to you is not our own words. We didn't make them up. We weren't taught them. We receive these words from God. And what we're telling you is not the word of man, but the word of God. That's really, in a nutshell, what inspiration is. These are not words of men. These are words of God. And this is yet another direct claim. We gave you the word of God. You received the word of God, which you heard from us, and you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. Okay, let's look at another instance. In Ephesians chapter 3. This is all throughout Paul's epistles. He emphasizes this time and time and time again. In Ephesians 3, um, he's talking about the mystery of Christ that had been made known to him by revelation, and he's writing down this revelation for the churches. Uh, let me begin at verse 2, Ephesians 3, starting at verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. He didn't learn it in college. No one told him these things. He received it by revelation. As I have already written briefly, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, and so forth. So, once again, he claims, what I'm writing to you, I receive directly from the Holy Spirit through revelation, and I'm now writing that down. And along with me, the other apostles and prophets are making this known to the church now. Divine inspiration. Uh, let's look at two more in Paul's letters. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Romans 16, 25 and 26. He ends his whole epistle to the Romans on this note. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. Now, let's take this piece by piece. First of all, what Paul has been writing to the Romans has never been written before. 
because it was a mystery. The whole revelation of Christ, the whole revelation of the gospel, was a mystery which he says had been previously hidden for long ages past. But now, in the present tense, now has been revealed and made known, and we saw in the previous reference in Ephesians 3, made known by the Holy Spirit to the apostles and prophets. He words that a little differently here, and he says, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings. He's not talking about Jeremiah and Ezekiel here. He's talking about the prophetic writings that are making up the New Testament scriptures. What the apostles and prophets of the New Testament were writing down and now make up our New Testament. Because there's a revelation that had been hidden even in all of the Old Testament writings. And here again, this is a bold claim that Paul is making, not only about himself, but the other writers of the New Testament. And let me go to one more reference in Paul's writings, and then we'll, I think we'll have time to look at Peter, and probably we'll have to wait till next time to look at John's writings. But one more quotation from Paul's letters, uh, back to 1 Corinthians and chapter 14, verses 36 and 37. 1 Corinthians 14, 36 to 37. He says, Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. That's clear. Paul is flat out saying, my writings are the Lord's commands. What I'm writing to you are the scriptures, the word of God. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people the word of God has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And many others like that we could pick out from Paul's letters, but I think um, that's more than sufficient to show that Paul believed that what he was writing and teaching the churches were not his own ideas, not things taught him by man, not some new religion that they were trying to start up, but he was delivering to them the very word of God. In other words, his letters, his writings, along with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, were divinely inspired. The Scriptures. Now, it gets more interesting as we go further into this. Let's now look at Peter. What did Peter have to say about what he was writing? And we go to Second Peter, and we've looked at this passage again, but it's worth coming back to now. Second Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> and I've given you the background on this passage, but very quickly again, Peter, James, and John were the three apostles that Jesus took with him up into what we now call the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter was one of three eyewitnesses of that event along with John and James. And you'll recall that while there on the mountain, they actually heard the audible voice of the Father saying, This is my Son, whom I love, and I am well pleased with him. 
And he recounts that here in 2 Peter 1, starting with verse 16. He said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. And that's, again, one of the criticisms that often comes up about the New Testament. Oh, these are just fables and myths and stories that different people made up. And over a period of time, all these stories got collected together and they became the New Testament. And there's a word in this very sentence that we referred to a lot in previous studies. It's the word eyewitness. Eyewitnesses are very important in proving things, whether it's in court or whether it's in the Bible. And God deliberately chose eyewitnesses to confirm all of the different events that are recorded for us in both the Old Testament and the New. Let me read this again. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, and it quotes, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And if you know anything about law, and I don't know very much, but I know there's a difference between an eyewitness and somebody who's reporting hearsay. Hearsay is second-hand information. Peter's not giving hearsay. He's saying, I heard this. I was there, I was an eyewitness, and I heard it with my own ears, the audible voice of God the Father saying, this is my son. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. What could possibly be more certain than hearing the audible voice of Almighty God the Father? He says there's something more sure, more certain than even that audible voice that we heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let me start with verse 19 again. We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, we still don't know what he's talking about. You've got to read the next two verses. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the best definitions or explanations in the scriptures themselves of what inspiration truly is. The scripture did not come by the prophet's own interpretation. It never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That verse 21, let me read to you a couple of other translations. Uh, the Amplified reads as follows. No prophecy ever originated because some man willed it. To do so, it never came by human impulse. But men spoke from God who were born along moved and impelled by the Holy Spirit. 
The New American Standard says no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. They spoke from God. And this, in a nutshell, is what divine inspiration is all about. Not made up by man, not taught by man, it did not have its origin in anything human. It came directly from God, and that's why repeatedly the scriptures refer to themselves as the Word of God. The Word of God. And while we're here in Second Peter, we'll end on this note and pick this up next time. Second Peter chapter 3. And we're actually going to come back later on to this passage again. It's so important. But we'll use it tonight just to introduce once again the fact that Peter realized what he and Paul and James and John were writing would become the Scriptures, the very Word of God. He says in Second Peter 3, verses 1 and 2, Dear friends, This is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. It's really a reference to both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he's lumping it all together and basically calling it the Scriptures. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophets. That's Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Jeremiah, etc. As well as the command, God's command given by our Lord and Savior, not through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but now through your apostles, through me, through Paul, through John, through your apostles, the command of God. And we'll continue this next time and look at quite a few places in John's writings Of course, he wrote extensively the Gospel of John, three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation, all written by John. And time and time and time again, he affirms that what he was writing down was the words of God. So, we'll finish there for this time, and we have quite a bit more ground to cover to answer this question, is the Bible just man's words, or is it God's word? If it's God's word, then it's divinely inspired, and it has tremendous weight, tremendous authority. And as we were sharing the other day, God says the kind of people he looks for are those that tremble at his word. Like King Josiah, when he heard the word of the Lord, his heart broke. He was cut when he heard the word of the Lord. Not like his son, Jehoiakim, who cut it up and threw it into the fire. Let's pray tonight and ask God to really give us a clear revelation and a clear conviction that this book we hold in our hands, the holy book, the holy Bible, and that's really what what we're saying when we say Bible, it's the book, the holy book. It's God's book to us. I think it'll change the way we read it if we really do believe and have that conviction in our hearts that this is God speaking to me. Father, I thank you tonight for the book. 
I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for the amazing supernatural ways that you have preserved all of these writings over a span of more than 2,000 years, 40 different authors, fishermen, theologians, shepherds, kings and priests, all of whom helped write it, and yet when we read it, we can tell that it's all written by one author. It's written by God. And Lord, you are the author of these words, and therefore we need to revere them, we need to tremble at them, we need to believe them. Help us, O God, to be hearers and doers of your word, Help us to understand the tremendous authority behind each and every word from Genesis right through to the book of Revelation. We thank you for your word, O God. How precious, how wonderful it is that we have Bibles that we can read and know that we're hearing from a living God each and every time we read from this book. God, I pray that you would bless your word to every hearer, those that are on the phone, those that are on the internet, those that may even listen to this recording in the future. I pray that you would bring that conviction by your Holy Spirit into each and every one of our hearts that this is your word. These are not man's words. These are the words of God. We give you thanks and we give you praise tonight in Jesus' precious name. Amen.